Howdy folks. Today I've got four stories I want to talk about. The first one is a really dumb interview that the new U.S. ambassador to Russia gave to Fox and Friends. Then I want to talk a bit about reports that the Russian Attorney General's office could very well ban several U.S. media outlets as undesirable organizations. Then I'm going to talk a very little bit about preparations in advance of the nationwide protests on Saturday, October 7th, that Navalny's campaign is planning. And finally, I want to do a bit of summary and kind of just tell you a bit about uh, this new article about the so-called Youth Army, which is a military patriotic movement that has, uh, has been um, getting stronger and, and gaining recruits in Russia. Howdy, folks. New episode of The Russia Guy. Today's Friday, October 6th. And the first thing I want to talk about is an absolutely embarrassing interview that, uh, that the new U.S. ambassador to Russia, John Huntsman, gave to Fox & Friends. Specifically, he gave it to his daughter, Abby Huntsman. And not only is that just an obvious conflict of interest, and there's no reason it should have ever been aired or even happened, uh, but the content of the interview is just ridiculous. Um, ambassador Huntsman repeats twice in the interview that the U.S. is the greatest country on the face of the earth. And the second time he does it, he actually elicits tears from... First he starts crying himself, and then his daughter starts crying, and they share, you know, a crying moment together. And it's good television. But <laughs> he says, you know, U.S. Is, U.S. is the greatest country on the face of the earth. Show me another country in the world that turns out during a time of need where neighbors are helping neighbors and friends are helping friends. Yeah. Sorry to even talk You're going to make me cry. Don't do that. It's a unique place. What is so unusual about friends helping friends? Neighbors helping neighbors, I guess, although I really find it hard to believe that, you know, the United States of America has a monopoly on that kind of behavior. But friends helping friends, that's just, that happens anywhere human beings exist, I would say. And this is the sort of thing that makes for crying on the air. Anyway, it's absurd. Uh, he also contradicts himself a few times. He says, first he starts out saying that the U.S.-Russia relationship is at an all-time low. He says, I have to be frank about this. But today the relationship's at an all-time low. I just have to be very frank about that. We all know that we're facing difficult times. Probably the most difficult uh, period in the relationship since the end of the Cold War. Then, then it's not an all-time low if it was as bad as this in the Cold War. All-time low would presumably be the Cuban Missile Crisis when we almost blew up the world. Um, or at least a lot of it. And then there's also this gem from Abby Huntsman. Over 700 employees have now been sent home. Ambassador Huntsman doesn't even bother to correct her. The more than 700 staff were dismissed because the United States was forced to reduce its diplomatic presence. But according to RBC, 600 of those 700 were local Russian employees, and only 100 of the, of the staff were American citizens and had to return home, as she puts it. At any rate, just a completely embarrassing interview, both in terms of the journalistic standards on display uh, and also the interview itself is just complete garbage and it's pretty embarrassing. I know that Ambassador Huntsman's an accomplished diplomat, but I can't imagine why he ever agreed to do this. I mean, I guess he loves his daughter and, and he's a conservative maybe, so Fox and Friends sounds great, but just embarrassing stuff. Another piece of news that broke also on Friday is that the Russian Attorney General's office is reportedly considering declaring unspecified 
American media outlets to be undesirable organizations. And so this is essentially meant as, or, you know, it's presumably meant as a retaliatory measure against the, uh, the, the investigations in the, uh, of um, RT and Sputnik in the United States, specifically the um, FBI reportedly forcing, or maybe it was the Justice Department, you know, it could be that I'm getting confused, but American law enforcement ordering uh, RT's TV broadcaster in the United States to register as a foreign agent and similar indications that the same might be asked of Sputnik. And there have been lots of uh, responses from Ameri- from Russian officials, specifically Margarita Simonyan has been sort of threatening that there'll be retaliation, even though she's not a policymaker. So it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense why she should be saber-rattling on that front, other than the fact that obviously she's, she sort of is a policymaker and RT is basically a wing of the, uh, the Russian government. And so it makes sense, obviously, in that regard, but at least formally, it doesn't make much sense. But at any rate, they now apparently are you know, getting the, the gears in motion to bring the hammer down in re- retaliation. And it's, it's uh, not at all uh, uh, proportional, let's say, because being uh, declared an undesirable organization isn't just having to declare your, yourself a foreign agent and you know having to undergo a little bit of extra regulation like it is in the United States. In Russia, it's a straight-out ban. And anybody even cooperating with you can be jailed. And so the, if, if you were to, you know, declare an American media organization to be undesirable, as opposed to just saying it's a foreign agent, then you're actually banning people in Russia from cooperating with it. So that's that applies to reporters, correspondents, and even stringers. It would be illegal to, to cooperate uh, with any any organization that is labeled undesirable. And the the, the three media outlets that have been mentioned so far as potential targets. The two obvious ones are um, Golas Ameriki, the uh, Voice of America, and then Radio Svoboda, Radio Freedom. And the third one that's been mentioned is uh, unfortunately not Fox, it's CNN. And so wouldn't it be nice if they if they could uh, get rid of, of, of Fox and interviews like the Huntsman interview, but, unf- but unfortunately they would be targeting CNN. And so um, again, not not proportional at all, given that CNN doesn't broadcast in Russian. And so, you know, what exactly are they afraid of? It doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Golos Amerika and Radio Svoboda makes slightly more sense, but they have very little reach in Russia. So again, it's it's not correct to look at this as a proportional response, but it certainly has, it's obviously structured as a way of, you know, responding in, in, in some way. And the idea that, that uh, you know, Russian officials aren't just going to stand by and let the Americans enforce their laws, they're going to, the Russians will enforce their own laws, and their laws are a lot stricter when it comes to media regulations. And if the United States wanted to really respond in kind, they'd have to pass some of these, pass similar laws. And so that, in the end, I don't see the United States winning in that tit-for-tat. Um, and it's it's going to be interesting to see if Russia, you know, actually bans these media outlets outright by by resorting to the undesirable organization clause that they've that they uh they passed in recent years this new power that the attorney general's office has another thing to look forward to in just a few hours now actually is the nationwide actually i suppose if they're nationwide they're happening you know in the far east so maybe they're already started i haven't even looked at my watch but um to see what time it is you know out there in um on the pacific coast in russia but uh navalny supporters are staging nationwide protests on saturday 
October 7th, Putin's 65th birthday, and they're happening in 80 cities across the country. These are all all the cities where he's managed to set up shop with uh, campaign offices, and they're going to be staging various forms of demonstrations. He's been able to get permits for a few pickets, which are uh, you know smaller smaller um, uh, events where there where the demonstrators are not allowed any sound ampl- amplification equipment, and so it's a bunch of people standing around with signs. I mean that's really what most most of these protests are, but nobody even has a microphone or a, I suppose even a, a bullhorn at any of these. So they're really relying on their signs, and they're just not very big demonstrations, presumably. Uh, but you know who knows? Maybe a lot of people would show up. But he uh, most of most of the rallies are going to be unsanctioned, which means that the local city officials have not granted them a permit. And the biggest one is not in Moscow. It's supposed to be in St. Petersburg. And so it'll be interesting to see if he indeed is able to, if Navalny is indeed able to turn out a larger crowd in St. Petersburg, or if it will still be bigger in Moscow, which is how it usually works. And the Moscow rally, I believe, starts earlier in the day, something like 2 p.m., and then the St. Petersburg rally doesn't start maybe until six or six or so. It's much. It's, it's several hours later, and so it'll be possible to watch both rallies. They won't. You won't have to watch them simultaneously. And I don't know if that will mean that you know the tone will be set in Moscow, and that will determine how it goes in St. Petersburg. But it's certainly going to be something to watch. And on Medusa, we put out a kind of interesting thing where uh, we reviewed what strategies both sides are taking in the lead-up to the protests. So what are the cops doing to get ready? And what are the protesters doing to get ready? And it's generally, I suppose, what you think. But I think it's it's helpful to see it, you know, laid out in bullet points. But uh, in a nutshell, the cops are obviously refusing to issue permits as a means of discouraging protesters to come out and demonstrate. Because if you don't have a permit, you can be detained or arrested. And that's obviously a disincentive for many people to risk their safety and so on. Um, and they are also seizing campaign literature from Navalny's various campaign offices. Not all of them, I don't think, but they're raiding them, you know, here and there. And they're taking the leaflets and the posters and all that jazz as a, either an intimidation tactic and also probably just to screw with their logistics and screw with their ability to promote the, the rally and the campaign. And the protesters, for the most part, are doing what you'd expect. They're trying to spread the word online. There are some efforts to spread the word offline. There was a report in um, Rospalt, I think, where they were saying that billboards had appeared in St. Petersburg advertising the rally, which I thought was interesting because it was unclear in the report when I read it that, uh, whether they had you know, bought the ads and that was allowed or if they essentially just graffitied over you know, existing billboards. It wasn't clear to me, uh, but maybe the article did specify and I just missed it. But uh, I hadn't, haven't seen widespread reports of things like that, but it's certainly apparently, you know, has occurred in St. Petersburg at least. And uh, they're also, you know, the, online you can download your own little banner or whatever, and you can print it out at home and bring it to the rally so that there's some consistency and so the, I, you know, the, the protest looks a little bit better coordinated, I suppose. The final story I wanted to talk about was a longer translation that we just published in uh, Medusa's English version. And it's a story from Kazan by a local reporter named uh, Ilnor Sharafiev. I hope I'm getting the name right. And it's this whole uh, story about the youth army, Yuna Armia. Yun Armia. And basically, it's this quote unquote uh, military patriotic movement. And it was created with 
support from the defense ministry, and its organizers say that they've already managed to recruit uh, at least 140,000 Russians between the ages of 8 and 18, and the photographs are probably the most fun thing about this uh, this story, because it's basically a, a ton of uh, you know young kids, although the pictures mostly show what I would, they look like older teenagers, I guess, um, but they're all dressed in these very colorful red and kind of tan uh, uniforms. They've got berets and all this jazz. And they look, you know, they look fancy. They look militarized. And the whole premise of this organization, which is it's referred to as both an organization and a movement. And that gives you some idea of how it's structured. It's not, it, it, has, it's, it has centralized structure and it has celebrity uh, sponsors. There's, apparently there's a whole coterie of sports-associated figures who, are, who take part in some of the, the organization's kind of public uh, festivities and inauguration balls and, and uh, induction ceremonies and things like that. So the the this this uh, youth army certainly has a very prominent and public face, um, and they have apparently they place ads all over the all over the place, and they've got um, uh, a pretty healthy presence in the state media regionally. I guess whenever they have an, a large in, uh, induction of new members, they manage to get that story printed in the media or mentioned in the media. So whoever's running their PR seems to be doing a pretty good job or has pretty good connections. But as you find out reading this, uh, this story written by Sharafiev, um, from, he's, he's in Kazan, uh, so a lot of it is focused on the Tatarstan presence of youth army. You find out that their organization is a bit hollow and the movement is a bit hollow. And when they show up at schools, there are reports that they tend to uh, forcibly recruit whole classes of students, and you know that's that causes an uproar among some of the parents. But then, what 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 he found out later, the what the writer found out later is that the youth army kind of then just tends to go away, and so they stage a few large events where they talk a lot about all the training they'll be doing, and then you don't really hear a, a lot more from them now. There's another account from Kaliningrad where a teacher says that actually some of her, some students did they volunteered for it themselves and they are going regularly and they're enjoying it and so it's not as though this you know youth army doesn't exist but certainly you know its its size might be exaggerated by its organizers and its organizers are also when you, at least the as as they're quoted in this story they seem to, you know, want more funding, and so yeah, I suppose it makes sense for them to portray themselves as as growing and really large. And any dysfunctionalities that are that one might say have to say about it are the result of its, you know, its growth is just so fast and its resources are getting stretched thin. But it's such a success, so let's pour some more money into it. So uh, in that regard, it's a sort of another. <laughs> I mean, any any story involving large governmental what have you, it's probably wise to wonder. How much of it is, you know, a money pit, and how does how well does does that describe what we're looking at? And in this case, it's it's very possible that we're seeing another example of something that's, you know, a government project or a pseudo government project, just sort of gobbling up money and and what it's doing with it, not entirely clear. The story is also very interesting. It has these anecdotes from parents and some from some of the students who have had exposure to the recruitment efforts of Youth Army, and. Generally speaking, it's it's you know they talk to a, a mother who's really proud of her son for being involved and it's making him a real man and all that stuff. It's you know what you'd expect, 
They talk to a girl who says that she's not particularly bothered by Youth Army. Uh, she says no one's forced her to join it. If she wanted to join it, she could do it through the school's pre-existing sort of outdoorsy uh, youth club. And the one guy in her class that has done it, he went and joined, but he didn't get his he didn't get the free uniform that everyone says you get. And um, he also wasn't told about any benefits. And another thing that the organizers apparently say, say to uh, possible recruits as a as a recruiting tactic is to tell them that military academies affiliated with the defense ministry will grant them privileges in the in the uh, enrollment process, the admissions the admissions process. And that doesn't seem to be something they've really gotten together yet. So very interesting sort of ground up perspective on this. Because the, the the first impression many people will have is, oh no, it's a it's a scary youth military patriotic movement. What is that anyway? It's frightening. And then when you talk to the people who are kind of on the receiving end of the recruiting efforts, most of them kind of shrug or they say, yeah, it's nice, but it's it's not you know what they said it would be. And I think that's a very kind of fun perspective to get. And I'm very I'm very happy we were able to translate that story into English. You should check it out. <laughs> <laughs> 